Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. And the Gospel is uh, on the temptations of Christ. And uh, it, it's a story, of course, very familiar to us. At the same time, it has some very, very significant um, teachings in it for us that uh, should make be, bring us not only into a deeper understanding of the person of Christ, but also maybe a deeper understanding of our own human nature. Because this is what surfaces and this is what dominates then in the story of the temptations of the Christ. That what Satan does to him is he plays to his human nature, constantly to his human nature, knowing us very well, knowing our vulnerabilities, knowing our weaknesses, all of those kinds of things. Satan has been playing in that arena for a very, very long time, from from uh, the Garden of Eden and uh, up now until the time of Christ. And so he's familiar with what he's doing. He's familiar with, with who we are and how we think and what our weaknesses and vulnerabilities are. And he's able to play on those. And maybe that's one of the great lessons we ourselves can take from this gospel, is that we're not in temptation. We're not dealing with someone who doesn't know us. We're not dealing with someone who doesn't have a deep insight into who we are, not only as human beings, but as each individual person as well. We all have our vulnerabilities, and we all have our weaknesses. We all have, maybe we might call it our port of entry for, uh, for temptation and um, for the machinations of, uh, of the evil one. And so we're going to see Satan um, at work, therefore, on the human nature of Jesus. He's, he's, he's very, he's wise enough to know, he has enough understanding to know that if he tries to tempt God, um, he, he's not going to get anywhere. So while Jesus is God, Jesus also is human. And so he plays then to that dimension of his humanness within his personhood and uh, in there hopes to make an inroad and in doing so to, end, to injure, to strike a blow against the divinity itself. So it says, <clears throat> Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, this is interesting too, because now Mark says he was driven into the desert by the Spirit. Here, Matthew says he was led into the desert by the Spirit, or the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And I think that we, <clears throat> this becomes a significant line in Scripture, because how much have we heard about, you know, um, let's change the Our Father, because when we say lead us not into temptation, God doesn't lead us into temptation and so forth. Well, he led his son into temptation, and, uh, and, and more dramatically in Mark, it said he drove his son into temptation. So we have to not assume to ourselves, well, since that on the surface doesn't make any sense to me, that therefore I have to change it, which is uh, part, of the, part of the disease of the contemporary church. Um, the issue is maybe we should look more deeply into what that might mean in our own personal lives. For here, for here, we see Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, as 
happens in, in, in preparation for a battle with evil. And this is consistent <coughs> throughout the scriptures. <coughs> and it's, um, there is this idea, and we certainly find it in the early church as well, among the fathers of the church, the Desert Fathers. Um, we call them the Desert Fathers. There were also a few women who did it as well, Mary of Egypt being one of them. So <clears throat> it was, therefore, some of the early Christians went out into the desert. And into the desert, we know, for instance, the story of St. Anthony of the desert. He wrestled with the devil, for he had to overcome his own temptations in the desert as well. And he becomes kind of then a historical Christ image and uh, St. Athanasius, when he writes his, uh, the, the biography of St. Anthony, he lets us know that just as Jesus was tempted in the desert, so too was St. Anthony. And so too does that mean in the wilderness of our own lives, and in the deserts of our own lives, when, when things are bleak, when things seem empty, when th things seem dark. It's at those moments that we're most vulnerable to temptation. It, what, what is for us personally an experience was throughout the story of God's dealing with his people. The desert became a place where you went to encounter both good and evil and hopefully chose good and experienced that deep rejection of Satan and that deep rejection of evil. It was a common place to do. In fact, as even in some spiritual movements today, people talk about their desert days and so forth, where they go into silence and alone. And never are we more vulnerable than when we are silent and alone. And so um, it becomes kind of a model for an understanding of an experience of conversion in Christianity, that we go into the emptiness and the loneliness, and there we will certainly encounter the presence of evil, and there certainly we will have the struggle that Jesus has, that Anthony had, and that we ourselves must pray to the Lord and beg the Lord to give us the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to resist and to overcome. But it says he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, fasting is very much part of conversion. We know that. And it is, it is in one sense, making the, the human needs raw, I suppose we could say. That, um, that it was like, you know, if you just had a full meal, um, you, you wouldn't really be tempted to choose uh, food over God. Um, if you were really hungry, who knows what we might do. Jesus was very hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. And so the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to turn into loaves. Clever. You know, if Jesus is the Son of God, why should he be going hungry? I mean, he is the one... Everything on earth belongs to him. Why can't he use it for his own well-being? Why can't he take it um, in order to gratify and to satisfy himself? Would it be a sin to eat after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting? Of course not. But what does Satan say to him? Turn the stones into loaves. Use your divinity in order to alleviate the sufferings of your humanity. In other words, don't be whole. Don't be complete. Don't be the incarnate Christ. Be kind of like, I don't know, like we say, for instance, in Hinduism, 
there's, a, there's a, the god Vishnu, oftentimes becomes among people in, in the form of flesh and blood and so forth. But it's always a disguise. It's always something he puts on over his divinity and then so that people don't recognize him and he can go about his business among human beings as one of them, but without being one of them. Part of the mystery of the incarnation, and this is what Satan is tempting Jesus to do, and part of the uh, part of the uniqueness of the incarnation, part of the uniqueness of Jesus, is that it's not separated humanity and divinity. They're together in one entity in Jesus Christ, and that while the divine person assumes to himself humanity, not he doesn't put on a disguise. He becomes, in some sense, then part of human nature. And so, so what Satan is doing is a couple of things. First of all, he's tempting to put himself first. Secondly, he's tempting to he's tempting him to um, tempt the Father, to tempt God, and and thirdly, he's trying to get him to be uh, dualistic. He's trying to get him to be a Hindu God rather than the incarnate Lord and Christ and the Son of the Living God. But Jesus says, comes back and says, but man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, even in my humanity, I do not live on bread alone. In my, in my human nature, I must tend, uh, be attentive first to the will and the words of the Father. Of, and so what is the will and the words of the Father is that I become integral, that I become part of human nature. In other words, that I don't become a dualistic Far Eastern God, that I become the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he rebukes Satan. For the greatest temptation, perhaps, is not just to, to use his divine power um, frivolously to please himself, um, for all that power really is for us, is for others, that basically he wants him to also to denigrate his incarnate presence and create the illusion of a separation, exactly as in many of the Far Eastern gods. And Jesus rejects this. He refuses to do that. He refuses to do it both in his humanity. How many human beings tend to want to divinize themselves? That was the sin of Eve. You'll be just like God. You'll know everything God knows. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, and so almost all of our sins of pride are the sin of Eve. They're trying to, we try to play God ourselves. We see that in, in not only in our personal lives, we see it not only in our own temptations to kind of, you know, to do it my way um, and not be attentive to the Word of God. Well, I think this and I think that. How many letters, for instance, do pastors get saying, you know, when they take a controversial stand in, 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 in fidelity to the teaching of the church and say, well, you know, you've offended me because in my family this has happened or in my family this has happened and you don't understand and so on and so forth. It's exactly what Satan is saying to Jesus. You know, get, 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 get over this, you know, what God wants you to do. Take care of yourself. You've got the power to do it. Go ahead and do it. Um, we do that all the time. And uh, people do that all the time. And part of the power of this gospel is to draw to our attention, don't do it. This is what's happening to you. 
And then it says, the devil then took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for scripture says he will put you, he will put you in his angel's charge. In other words, this is the temptation to denigrate the role of Messiah. And, and part, of that, part of that is that we know that in the New Testament, we know that not all Jews anticipated a Messiah. We know that. Um, but we do know that the ones, most of the ones at least who did anticipate a Messiah, anticipated a Messiah who was going to be, do, perform great signs and great wonders. They were going to crush the nations of the earth. They were going to restore the great kingdom of David. They were going to do all of that. And, uh, and, and that's why Jesus forbade his disciples in any way, shape, or form to, um, to tell people that he was the Messiah, why he forbade the demons to speak out on what they knew. Because as soon as they said, well, he's the Messiah, then they would expect all this dramatic activity. And if they didn't get it, they wouldn't believe, no matter what he did or no matter what he said. So the idea of catering to kind of the vulgar expectations of the crowd was, in a sense, a way to destroy faith because, and the capacity to believe, because Jesus was not that Messiah. And he, if he were to become that Messiah, he would betray his own mission. And so what Satan is asking him to do in this, betray your mission, betray your father, betray the spirit, betray the people. Don't give them what God knows is best for them. Give them what they want, and then you'll be really popular, and everyone will be awed by, by you. If they could see Jesus, you know, flinging himself off the tower of the temple and the angels coming to rescue him, what else could he do? Why, he could conquer the world. He could do all those kinds of things, which in truth he could, but that's not how he chose to deal with us because that's not what was good for us. That's not what taught us the interior life of ourselves, of ourselves and also the interior life of the incarnate Christ, the Son of the Father, the Messiah, our Savior. Once, once this has happened, Jesus says to him, but scripture also says, you must not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, why should I do something that Satan tells me to do? Why should I? Um, because you know that there is nothing to my benefit or the benefit of my mission. Even if, I, even if you and I, for instance, were to receive temptations of this sort to exploit our, our, our options and our opportunities, um, even, even then we would say that which, it, uh, not that what we use, but what we exploit within ourselves um, for our own aggrandizement, almost always turns and becomes a great deficit in our lives, in our relationship with God, in our self-understanding, and in our holiness. And so then he says, next taking him to a very high mountain, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I will give you all these, he says, if you fall at my feet and worship me. And then Jesus replied, Begone, Satan, for scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And so the devil left him, and the angels came and looked after him. So this, then, is the story of the temptation of the Christ. What is this last temptation about? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus could have all the kingdoms he wanted to have if he wanted to have them. 
But what is happening is Satan is making a very, very strong statement, and it's something that surfaced to, to us also in the book of Job. It's not that the world is an evil, wicked place. That's not the issue. The world, the world has many good aspects to it, many good people in it, many hopeful things, many, many, many wonderful things that go on within it. But the king of this world, the one, the one who rules, and if we don't think Satan rules this world, let us look around and see. The things that are happening in our world are diabolical. The wars that we've had, the, the genocides that we've had, the, the perversions that become virtues within our society, all of the, they, it's the kingdom of darkness, it's the kingdom of Satan. Satan rules the world as its own king through that ruling of the world. And here he, he brings that to Jesus' attention. This is my world, he says. I'm in charge here. Watch me. Watch me. You know, but I'll give all that to you if you worship me. What in the world would ever happen if God knelt down and worshiped Satan? You know, I mean, it is, it would be Satan's coup de grace. He would have finally destroyed the divinity, his, his ancient enemy. And Jesus, of course, is saying, be gone, Satan, enough of this. You've tried every cheap trick you know, and none of them are going to bring about the desired results that you want. So you might as well leave me alone and let me be about the business of saving the world. Um, and so Satan does go away. But actually, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, I believe it is, it says to come back another day. Jesus' temptations are not once and for all. He doesn't say, I make this. It's like, it's like if we take it in a totally human context, we take Anthony in the desert. Was Anthony in the deserts wrestling with the devil, his great conversion, his great willingness, his great choice of the Lord? Did that make him immune from temptation forever? No. But when it came, it had much less power over him. It had much less temptation. It had much less control. It's like we ourselves. If we, in fact, in the midst of our deepest temptations, choose the Lord, if we do that, we know that, for instance, each time it becomes easier to choose the Lord than it was before. The great temptation is the first temptation. They're constant. If we give in to that, we will give in over and over again. It's like what we learn from the book of Genesis, from the sin of Eve, you know, that the devil was incredibly clever in the, in the temptation. The devil didn't say, go ahead and do that because God said not to. He first of all engages Eve in conversation and he says to her, now did God tell you you couldn't eat any of the fruit? He knows what God said to her. And uh, she says, then she enters into the discussion. Oh, no, no. He said, just the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And then Satan says to her, um, <clears throat> well, do you know why he said that? And, well, no, I have no idea, she says. Well, this is the reason, because if you do, you're going to be just like him. And that's actually the foundational temptation. But it teaches us also, once we begin the conversation with temptation, once we began entertaining the temptation, probably the end of the story is written. Notice here 
that Jesus simply, the only thing he does, he doesn't say, well, how can you do that? Or why would I do something like that? He doesn't enter into conversation. He responds, no, basically, no. And that's what he says each time, is no. Um, and so Satan finally gives up and goes away to try again another day, the scripture says. Well, <clears throat> in our own lives, you know, if Eve could have resisted the first temptation, the one that said, you know, you can be God if you really want to, which is what most of the serious sins of our world really are all about. Um, I'm in charge of my life, you know, that song that was, uh, that was uh, so kind of characteristic of the modern age, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, and, and then this is all supposed to be a great thing. Well, it's not a great thing. We should say, you know, I did it God's way, and that has made all the difference, you know? And that I think that this is something that we, we get, culturally we get into. It's, it's just like um, nobody, I would hope, nobody denies that we have caused havoc with the planet on which we live. I think that, you know, the, uh, even in the Middle Ages, they knew not to clear-cut forests and things like that. Um, that they replanted and that they rotated and they did all of that kind of thing. Um, but in the, in the more modern times, especially during the Industrial Revolution and during the times of rationalism, when nature was not, an, it was not a living organism, but when nature was simply a utilitarian uh, reality for us, we caused untold damage to it, and we still do that to some degree. I just heard a lecture the other day that was saying like the Jordan River is completely polluted. Um, how sad in this day and age that that, that, that would happen. Um, and we're all, of course, familiar with many years ago the Cuyahoga River catching fire. To say, in fact, that we have not done great damage to the planet would be false. To say that we're totally in charge of its destiny is also false. God alone is in total charge of its destiny. And that, uh, that out of love for him and out of respect for his command to be good stewards of creation, we should be much more careful, much more cautious, and without, without all sorts of fanaticism and with all sorts of extremism that kind of denigrates the real authenticity of the argument that we should care for the world in which we live. Well, it's things like that, you know, that... Uh, um, have we caused damage? Yeah. Can we, should we repair the damage? Oh yeah. I mean, is this doomsday? Are we totally in charge? Is there nothing? No, no. That's not the way, that's not the way God works and that's not the way we work. Um, life is always a little bit more ambivalent than that. And while we have great power of stewardship over the earth, and that's being recognized even by those who don't believe in God, nevertheless, we can't really use it as a weapon against people and against our way of life. Um, and it's the same way with so much else. Um, are, the, are the very, for instance, is the, is the kind of what, uh, what we tend to call, but which wasn't really true, the whole Victorian notion of human sexuality? Um, was that really healthy and good? Well, not really. Is the reaction to that complete and abandoned sexual anarchy? Of course not, it isn't. It's just as destructive, worse in fact, than the repression that had taken place. Um, 
So we have to be very, very careful not to fall into the temptations that the Lord Jesus was tempted with when he was, in fact, in the desert. And, and, and I think that when we look at these temptations that he had, one is to use whatever we have for ourselves and not be aware of the fact that what we have really is not just for ourselves, but also for the well-being of others. And we also have to be made um, and, and to say, you know, that if we, in fact, have any goodness in us at all, we have no business whatsoever flaunting that and saying, hey, look at me, look how great I am. You know, we think sometimes with the great saints it's contrived for them to talk about their sinfulness. Um, but it isn't contrived, it's real. And uh, it's just a matter of deep honesty. If we can't see it in ourselves, then we lack sanctity. If we ha can't see it in ourselves, then we lack that height of awareness which makes us capable of totally accepting the living God in our lives. For we are not perfect, and we are flawed human beings. And uh, the more we recognize that, the more authentic we become in our own humanity. Um, all of the, most of the great saints have always put as one of the prerequisites for being holy is know thyself. And, uh, and while this is an old philosophical prof, um, proposition from, from Socrates also, it was very much the lives of, of many, many of the great saints. If you don't know who you are, there's no room in your life for the divine because you, get, you crowd him out with yourself. And then when this, this whole business then... <clears throat> of give in to the world and you'll be popular. Give in to all of these modern things. Give in to all of this kind of perversion. And, and, and people will love you and you'll be, you'll be uh, you know, you'll be great. Look at, look at politicians running for office. How many of them have no principles left at all because they've sacked sacrificed every single one of them so as not to offend, so as to endear themselves to certain power groups um, within the society. How many have done that? How many of us do that personally? How many of us cover ourselves up? How many of us suppress our, our values, our ideals, our faith in order that other people will like us and that other people will accept us? These are all, Jesus's temptations are, are dramatic. But there are temptations in a very undramatic way, usually as well. Use what we have for ourselves. Make a show out of whatever gifts we might have and give in to the modern cultures and every age, not just our own, to all that is dark in them in order that we're accepted, that people like us and that we become then, in some way, shape, or form, more powerful in the world than we would be had we been rejected for what we believe and who we are. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Thank you.